0: you would turn with me in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 19. So that's the last book of the Bible. Not quite the end of the book, chapter 19. You may want to keep your Bibles open. We'll flip to a a couple of other verses there. But we conclude our series this morning on the Bride and the Lamb, a series on human sexuality. Uh, We've been looking at this for a number of weeks now. It was not planned that I would preach the last sermon and then head out of town. Um, that, uh, that just worked out that way, all right? Um, but we're going to look at God's Word, Revelation 19, page 1934 in your pew Bibles. 1934, hear the word of our Lord. forever and ever the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped god who was seated on the throne and they cried amen hallelujah and then a voice came from the throne saying praise our god all you his servants you who fear him both great and small then i heard what sounded like a great multitude like the roar of rushing waters And like loud peals of thunder shouting hallelujah for our lord god almighty reigns let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory for the wedding of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready fine linen bright and clean was given her to wear fine linen stands for the righteous acts of the saints then the angel said to me "Write: blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the lamb And he added, these are the true words of God. At this I fell at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, do not do it. I am a fellow servant with you and with your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, the Bible begins with a wedding, and the Bible ends with a wedding. In fact, we said that the final act of God's creation was to create marriage. God brought a man and a woman so much alike and yet so wonderfully different. God brought a man and a woman together and made them one, one flesh. And as we said throughout this series, that this is really a pointer. Our marriages are a pointer. They point us, for one, to God, to to God the Trinity, to the union of, of difference that makes up God Himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God. But it also points us, marriage also points us to the end or to our goal. It points us to where God is taking us, and He's taking us, He's moving us toward union with Himself. That's where all things are headed. God and human beings together as one, under one head, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's where all things are moving. And friends, that's even the focus of our sexuality. All sex in this world falls short in some way, It cannot be satisfied completely in this world. It can only point us ahead to union with God. Even the best sex in the best marriage always leaves us longing for something more, We are designed, we are created in the end to be united with God. That's the consummation of all things. It's a powerful and joyful coming together of Jesus Christ with his people. That's where all things are headed, toward a final wedding. And this will be a wedding that is going to supersede any wedding that we have ever been a part of, even your own. And this wedding, in a very personal way, can also be our very own wedding, if we are united to Jesus Christ even now. But speaking of weddings, all right, that's where I want to begin this morning. Um, whenever I marry or we marry a couple in this church, we always try to emphasize that the or emphasize the fact that a wedding. A wedding ceremony is actually a worship service. In other words, in the wedding ceremony, we want the focus really to be ultimately on God. We don't worship the bride and the groom. Okay, They're usually nice people. They're usually very good-looking people, but that's not who we worship. We worship the God who, by entering into a covenant relationship with his people, actually makes it possible for you and for me to enter into covenant relationships with one another. And what we're doing in a wedding ceremony is we ask this covenant-keeping God to join us and to witness the covenant vows that we make to one another and actually enable us to keep those covenant vows to one another because we can't do it on our own. And so the focus really is always to be on God And that focus, friends, gets diluted as we pour more and more of our attention into things like saying yes to the dress and choosing the trendiest destination for our wedding and and bringing our pets in to witness our vows. And pretty soon God is sort of feeling like, like he's demoted to table 62 in the reception hall. He's sort of an afterthought to the whole deal. Something you immediately notice about the wedding in Revelation 19 is that God is at the center. God is the focus of our worship. The great multitudes, the 24 elders, the voice from the throne, all of their worship is directed to God. Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. Praise our God, all you His servants, you who fear Him, both great and and small. And even when John gets it wrong, when he loses his focus and he begins to worship the angel, the angel basically pounces on him and says, don't do it. I'm just a creature like you are. Worship God. We need more brides and grooms who do that sort of thing. Don't come to worship us. Come to worship our God. And yet, here's the paradox of this wedding in Revelation 19, and that is that none of this, none of this worship of God, none of it seems to diminish the bride in any way. The bride here is also noted for her stunning beauty. Somehow, somehow worshiping God, celebrating the groom, it makes the bride even more attractive even more beautiful. There's, there's paradox like that. There's irony like that throughout this text. It's just one of the ways in which this wedding is unique, but there are, there are so many images here that, that give us insights into what our final wedding day will actually be like. And to get at that, I'm going to call our attention to just a few snapshots that we find In this text snapshots of this final wedding Um, since we're talking about weddings and I'm sort of unleashing on you um, another thing that often kind of bugs me about wedding ceremonies is photographers who don't get that fact that we're here to worship God we actually have rules in our church for wedding ceremonies that that photographers during the ceremony itself are supposed to sort of stay in the back, stay in the background, be up in the balcony, take all the pictures you want from there. What we usually get, however, is, you know, they're coming down the aisles and and they're they're coming up on the stage, they're in the wings. Pretty soon they're going to be pushing me out of the way. It's just going to be the photographers and the couple getting married. Um, I'm being a little facetious here, but sometimes it feels that way. But what I want to say is, you know, when you look at their pictures later, you see the wedding often from angles that you didn't see it at first. And and that's what I'm hoping to do with you a bit this morning, is, is, is to give us a few snapshots of this final wedding from an angle that perhaps we may not have seen before. Like any good photographer, I think John draws things out that, that aren't immediately obvious. So let's look at a few snapshots this morning. The first one is this. He gives us a snapshot of the groom, and what we need to see is that this groom is fiercely monogamous. He's fiercely monogamous. This text actually begins in sort of a stunning way. You don't think it's a wedding. It begins with judgment. The wedding between the bride and the lamb cannot happen until lady babylon is judged the wedding can't take place until lady babylon is judged one of the things that that we noted the last time we studied the book of revelation is that when you get to this part of the book of revelation the dominant images here are cities babylon and jerusalem and they come sort of as twin images you see not just the city but the city is paired with a woman and so babylon is sort of like the evil twin sister of jerusalem's pure spotless bride and babylon is portrayed as a as a prostitute but not just any run-of-the-mill woman of the evening Babylon here is provocative, she's alluring, she's successful, she's rich. In fact, she's so prosperous and appealing that she tempts the citizens of Jerusalem actually to, to take up with her, to take up residence in Babylon. According to Richard Bauckham, John is, is playing here off, off the ancient mythic ideal of the city, as the place where human community lives in security and prosperity with the divine in its midst. And so the city was sort of pictured like this. The city was built around a, a deity, around a god. And that god then provided peace and security for all of the people who were a part of that city. And so Jerusalem here is the city where Yahweh dwells, where God dwells himself Um, and those who worship him who worship yahweh they find their their gladness and their peace and their security they find shalom fullness in jerusalem babylon on the other hand represents the perversion of this ideal at the center of babylon you find humans who deify themselves you find citizens who are proud and God-defying and exploitative. And this goes all the way back, really, to the Tower of Babel, right? When humans use their technology to build a, a, a tower into heaven, for what purpose? To place themselves there and displace God. That's what Babylon is all about. It's a place where human beings rule. In other words, in Jerusalem, people are married to Yahweh. In Babylon, people defy or deify themselves, and they run after all sorts of idols, right? You know how you have your iPhone, and, and anything we want to do, we say, hey, there's an app for that, right? You can do it. Get the app. That's kind of what life in Babylon is like. Anything you want to do, there's an idol for that. You just get your own idol, and you can do it your way what John is telling us here is Babylon and Jerusalem are very different and you have to make a choice you have to choose one or the other we see um, we see I think a portrait of Babylon a very convincing portrait of Babylon today I think we see the presence of Babel today in our own society perhaps more than ever carl truman is a philosopher who writes about this we talked a little bit about it in adult ed um, last week but he describes our world today this way he says he says we live in what's become a plastic world a plastic world in other words we've come to believe that this world is is moldable and it's justable adjustable into whatever shape or form i need it or want it to be okay in other words I'm not the one who has to change. My world has to change to fit me. It wasn't always this way. And I'll I'll just give you, you know, one of the examples that that he uses. He says, you know, if you were born in 18th century England and you were born on a farm, your life was pretty much determined for you at that point. It was determined by the, the time you were born and the place you were born. You were going to be a farmer. In fact, the very soil of the farm that you lived on would pretty much determine what kind of life you would have. If it was good soil, you might, you might be somewhat prosperous. If it was bad soil, you would be living in poverty, more than likely. And the thing is, there wasn't the kind of transportation that we have today, right? That you could just hop in a car and, and move to the other side of the country or hop on an airplane and, and move to the United States. You didn't have options. You didn't have... You didn't have choices like that. You were stuck. The world was a hard place with hard surfaces and hard walls. It even comes down to our sexuality. There was nothing like birth control. There was no pill. So even our sex acts had to be, had to be timed and well thought out and planned because there were always consequences. And those consequences could not be managed. They couldn't be slipped aside You had to adjust to the world that you lived in. Medicine, think about education, all of the options that we have today, none of that was available. Your world was a very hard place. It didn't adjust for you. If you think about just the world of labor, um, my father was born in a time during the Depression, right? There weren't many jobs available and the jobs that were there weren't very high paying. If you could find a job, you would take it and likely you would hang on to it as long as you could. And that's what he did. He worked in a factory pretty much his whole life, the same job. It wasn't wasn't anything that would ever make him rich, but it paid the bills and so that's what he did. Now, when I came along, I had a few more choices, right? I had choices of education and um, um, I could move around to different places the world is kind of an opportunity for me but even then when I was in college and high school there were limited jobs available right so you would take the job that was there you would take the pay that was available and when they told you this is where you work you work in this office or in this factory That was where you worked, and they told you these are your hours, 6.30 to 5. Those were your hours. You didn't get to say, well, I'd rather not come in at 6.30. i kind of like to start at 10. You see, the world was not plastic. But now I look at my children today, and it's a totally different situation, isn't it? The world has kind of changed just in the world of labor. There aren't enough workers, and all of a sudden employers are desperate to find people. And so what do they say? Oh, you want to work at home? Go ahead, work at home. You want to work different hours? Go ahead, work whatever hours. And we begin to think that the world adjusts to me, that the world is plastic, and whatever I want it to be, it can become. We saw sort of the extreme of that last week when we, when we basically said, you know, even if I don't feel like I fit into my biological body, what has to change or what can change? My body can change. I can change my body to fit who I think I really am. And friends, the consequences this has is on us spiritually pretty soon we think the very same thing about God. That God is plastic. That he will adjust to my wants and my wishes. That he'll become anything I want him to become. And so if I say, God, I don't accept what you are asking me to do. God's the one who has to change, not me. And what John says to us, friends, at the beginning of chapter 19, is God is not plastic. And friends, we have to understand this. There is a day coming when we will find out that God does not bend to our wishes. That God has his will for our lives This is what's best for us, and he will judge us according to his will. That's what happens here in 19, in chapter 19. Babylon is judged. Babylon, with its self-worship, with its choice of gods to fit every occasion, Babylon must fall so that the new Jerusalem can take her place. You see, what we find out here is our God is severely monogamous. Throughout Scripture, the church, God's people, are always viewed as the bride of Christ. And when we commit sins, when we follow idols, it's never just a matter of of breaking a set of rules or going against what the government says. It's always a very personal thing with God. He says to us, you are my bride and you are committing adultery. It's always a personal thing. And what God is telling us right at the beginning of this text is, I want a wife who is as monogamous as I am, as faithful as I am. Second photo I want you to see is that of the wedding banquet. Okay, It's that of the wedding banquet. The wedding of the Lamb has come, we're told. Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. Now, there's not a lot of actual description of the banquet itself here in our text, And the reason for that is because it's a prophetic image that has been presented to us in Scripture over and over again. Let me just read for you, for instance, from Isaiah chapter 25, which also, by the way, begins with the destruction of Babylon, but then we read this. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a rich feast of food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines, On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. You see, that's an image that's even picked up in Revelation, Revelation 21. As the new Jerusalem descends from heaven, as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband, we read, and it will be a time of no more tears or crying or pain and a time of no more death. Friends, what I want you to take note of here is that the marriage of the bride and the lamb means the end of death and the end of tears. Let's just think about the tears first. This wedding is marked by the end of suffering. There will be no suffering in this relationship. If there's anything that we've marked in this series, it's the fact of how difficult it can be to live as citizens of Jerusalem, especially in a world that that seems like Babylon. Right? It's a difficult thing. What are we called to do? What have we said throughout this series? We've said things like, you know, if you're same-sex attracted, you still need to live a life of faithful celibacy. That's hard. And that's not only hard, but it's harder in this world where everywhere else you get the message, hey, you got to follow your own desires. You have to do what you want. And yet here in the church in Jerusalem, we say things like, no no you don't follow your heart you follow god's will i mean just think of any kind of faithful singleness how difficult that can be and yet this is what we are called to right and it's hard and there are tears involved with that and then there's the second category that jesus gave us the second category of the eunuch which we said is there are people who have been made eunuchs by others. And we haven't had a lot of time to spend with that category, but, but just think about all of the suffering that, that, that takes place within that category of life. I mean, this is, this is Babylon, right? This is where people are victimized and people are exploited and are oppressed. When you think about this, this category of those who are eunuchs made by others, you think about children who have been abused, and then later they grow up to be adults. But that abuse has scarred them to a point that it never goes away. There are victims of rape. There are adulterers and those who are the victims of adultery. There is, there is divorce and, and, and something beautiful that broke down that you never imagined would ever break apart. And then we have we have children who are introduced to pornography by an older brother, an older sister, an older friend. We have abuse um, in the church by church leaders, by the very officers that we just ordained. We saw that in the, the Southern Baptist Convention just this past year. There is so much pain, so many tears in this area of sexuality. But not in this marriage. Not anymore. Friends, no longer will there be a wife or a husband who has to look at their spouse and say, no, I can't be intimate with you because there's too much in my background, there's too much pain, I can't get past it. Not in this marriage. There will be no more tears, no more shame, no more disgrace. All of our deepest longings will be perfectly fulfilled in the Lamb. And along with that, the prophets say there will be no more death. I said earlier in this series that we have to remember that no earthly marriage is going to last forever. One day, all of us are going to be single. The shroud of death overshadows every love relationship that we know. Parents and children, husbands and wives, Brothers and sisters, students and teachers, friend and friend. Every relationship that grows out of the fruitfulness of a man and a woman, every one of those relationships is still overshadowed by death. Every earthly marriage has an end date. But in Christ, that end date is a new beginning, it's always a new beginning. Finally, there will be no more death that is able to separate us from the true desire of our hearts. That day is coming. The third photo I want you to see is that of a lamb. Okay, The groom here is a lamb. A bit strange, right? Jesus is a human being. God is. Also human, yet we have a picture here of a lamb. I said there would be no pets at this wedding. What's what's going on here? Well, just just as we talked about the pain that's involved in our sexuality, we also have to acknowledge that not all of that pain is put on us by someone else, is it? Some of it's self-inflicted. Some of us have done the hurting. None of us is without blame when it comes to our sexuality. All of us have spent time in Babylon, and Babylon has spent time in all of us. And the question becomes how do you take people from Babylon and actually move them into the New Jerusalem? How does that happen? And the answer, of course, is the Lamb. The Lamb. John the Baptist once pointed to Jesus, and he said, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. A little later, that same John pointed again to Jesus, and he said, he is the bridegroom. He is the bridegroom, and the bride belongs to him. And he said, I am just a friend of the bridegroom. I'm just one of his groomsmen. He must become greater, and I must become less. He must become greater and I must become less. John knew that Jesus was the bridegroom. And and just as an aside here, friends, this is something that John Calvin actually pointed out to all office bearers in the church. And he said this to office bearers in the church. He said, remember that Jesus or the church is Jesus' bride. The church belongs to Christ, not to you. Don't go acting like the church is your bride, that she somehow belongs to you. The groomsmen, he said, have to know their place. And it's our job as office bearers in the church to present the bride of Christ to Jesus, pure and holy. It's not our job to take advantage of the bride ourselves. It's good advice. Always remember who the bride belongs to. But back to John the Baptist, he called Jesus the bridegroom, and Jesus did not deny that. In fact, Jesus lived into that. In fact, if you remember the very first um, parable or miracle in the Gospel of John, it's a wedding, right? Jesus is a guest at a wedding, and his mom comes up to him at the wedding, and she says, Jesus, we have a problem. They've run out of wine. This, this party is going to be a flop. And Jesus looks at her, and he says, you remember what he says? He says, woman, why do you involve me? My hour has not yet come. Now why would he say that? Strange answer. Um, Chris Gansky reminds me of this. Uh, This is how he takes it. He says, you know how when you're visiting at a wedding or you're a guest at a wedding, you always seem to somehow come back to your own wedding? You remember what your own wedding was like. You're always comparing the two. He says that's what's actually going on here with Jesus. Jesus is here at a wedding and he's comparing it to his own wedding, but Jesus isn't looking back, Jesus is looking ahead. He's looking ahead to his own wedding, and his own wedding cannot take place until his hour comes, until the hour of his suffering and death on the cross. That's when Jesus' wedding comes. And this is the only way that citizens of Babylon can ever become citizens of the New Jerusalem. It's only by the spilling of Jesus' blood. Jesus must become our sacrificial lamb. And that's why our groom is a lamb. There could be no more marriage without, or no marriage without that cleansing sacrifice on his part. But in his spilled blood, is the power to make each and every one of us stunningly beautiful and stunningly pure. Okay, there's only two photos left. I'll try and make these quick. The first is a throne. There is a throne here, right? Throughout the book of Revelation, the throne of God has always been a central image, and yet it's always been sort of a distant image. When you first see the throne of God in Revelation 4, it's up in heaven and it's surrounded by by elders and living creatures and it's kind of like we can't get at it and there's this separation between heaven and earth but in revelation 22 verse 3 we hear the cry that the throne of god and of the lamb will be in the city the throne comes down into the new jerusalem it's right there among god's people there's no more separation And then we read, and the servants, his servants will serve him. His servants will serve him. It's clear that we are God's servants, even in the New Jerusalem, but then we're told just in in two verses later, and we will also reign with him forever and ever. And there's this image of God where these two things coincide. We are servants of God, and yet we reign with him. We rule with God. How does that happen? How does that happen? Friends, what I want us to see is that throughout this series, again, we've always seen the reign of God sort of contradicting our own desires and our own will. All right? What we see here is that John pictures for us a rule or a throne that is not characterized by power, or subjection, or ruling over someone else. But here we see the rule of God and the will of man becoming one. Let me try and give you an example. Again, there is always throughout this series, there's been this tension, right, between what God says, right? God might say, if you're same sex attracted, I don't want you to act on that attraction. God might say, if you're dating your, your your future spouse, but you haven't married yet, you should still refrain from sex. God might say, if you don't feel like you fit the body that I gave you, you should still try and live into that body and not just try to change it. So there's always this, this tension, right, this dissonance between what God says, what God's will is, and what I feel like I desire or want for myself. And what John is saying here is that there is a day that is coming when God's rule and my desire, my human freedom will be completely and totally reconciled. They will be the same thing. And I will fully realize that God's will for me is also what's best for me. That day is coming. Do we have any image of that in Scripture? I think we do. And again, it's in marriage. Sometimes I'm working with couples as they're getting married and and they'll point out this text in Ephesians and they'll say, you know, I'm not too sure about this. It says that a wife must be subject to her husband. And then I'll say, well, did you read the verse before that? And it says, we must submit to one another out of reverence in Christ. And then they go kind of scratch their heads and say, well, how does that work? How do you submit to each other in a marriage? Don't you always need someone who's kind of calling the shots? And she you need someone who actually has to, you know, when it comes down to it and the argument is getting too heated, there's, there's got to be one person who actually says, well, this is what we're going to do. And then they're married 10 years. And they say, let's talk about that passage again. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And all of a sudden, they know what it means. Because there haven't been that many instances where somebody finally had to make the decision. But what happened instead was two minds began to think more and more like Jesus Christ. And all of a sudden, my answer is very much the same as your answer. Somebody's getting bored here, but um, but do you get the point. As we become more like Christ, we become more of the same mind. And Jesus says that's what it'll be like when we actually become one with our God. This is intimacy. This is true intimacy. To be known and to know. Our minds will be one with God. Our rule will be the same. The final image, okay? And this is the face of the groom. The face of the groom. You see in this text uh, the wedding dress of the bride. Chapter 19, verse eight it says um, the bride has made herself ready fine linen bright and clean was given her to wear and fine linen stands for the righteous acts of the saints how does that work i mean it's the bride's clothes and yet they seem to have a source somewhere else and yet she must put them on she has to wear them they must become her righteous acts this has always been said, this is, this is what sanctification is all about. And in the Reformed faith, sanctification is the work, fully the work of God. It's also fully the work of human beings. It's basically that w- the fact that we are given the holiness of Jesus Christ. He makes us holy, and then he also gives us his spirit, right? And we are to live into that holiness. We are to own that holiness for ourselves. We are to put on the robes that we are given in Jesus Christ. You look at that and you say, well is that is that really possible? I mean is it really possible that that God could give me some different clothes and in seeing that wedding dress I would actually step out of Babylon and I would exchange the purple and the Scarlet and the cheap costume jewelry for the real stuff. Is that really possible? How does that happen? I think the answer is in chapter 22, verse 4. In the New Jerusalem, they will see his face. They will see the face of God, the face of the groom. So, what does that mean? Let me give you an example. Normally, um, in preaching a series on human sexuality, the last example I would ever give is from the television series Cheers. But that's what I'm going to do. There's an episode in Cheers, the very first season, in which uh, Coach, who is the bartender, his daughter Lisa, comes to visit him. And she comes with an announcement that she's going to get married and she comes to introduce her fiancé to her dad. And if you remember her dad, he had a hard time ever uh, saying somebody should do this or somebody should do that. But this guy, Roy, he turned out to be such a loser. I mean, he was rude, he was demeaning toward Lisa, he was self-absorbed, he was just irritating to be around. Just not a nice guy at all. And so Coach finally works up the courage and he pulls his daughter aside and he says, I'm putting my foot down and I am not going to let you marry this man. I'm not going to let you do it. And the conversation that follows goes like this. Lisa says, look, Daddy, and you have to understand, Lisa is not a stunningly attractive woman. Just leave it at that. She says, look, Daddy, I'm not dumb. I know Roy's abrasive. I know he's insensitive. And I know that he's probably only marrying me so he can get the Pennsylvania territory. So she's his supervisor at work. And her dad says, but why would you want to marry a man like this? She said, Daddy, isn't it obvious to you? Nothing's ever obvious to me, he says. So if you know the show... Daddy, don't make me say this. What? What? I want to be married. And I want to have children. And Roy is the first man that ever asked me to marry him, and I'm afraid he's going to be the last. Oh, come on, honey. There must have been dozens of young fellows that proposed to you. No, Daddy, wake up. Roy is the first one ever. But, but you're so beautiful, so beautiful? Daddy, you have been saying I'm beautiful ever since I was a very little girl. But look at me. Look at me, not as my father, but look at me as if you're, as if you're seeing me for the very first time. Please, Try to see me as I really am. Oh my goodness, he says. I didn't realize how much you looked like your mother. I know, says Lisa. I look exactly like her. And mom was not. And at that point, she looks into the face of her father, and she sees the most admiring, loving face anyone could ever see. And she says, and she was not comfortable about her beauty. But that's what made her more beautiful, he says. Your mother grew more beautiful every day of her life. She really was beautiful, says Lisa. Yes, and so are you. You're the most beautiful kid in the whole world. Thanks, Daddy. friends lisa looked into her father's face and what she saw there was her true self not an object not something to be used for someone else's benefit or pleasure she saw her true self her true character her true dignity her true beauty her true identity And when she saw that, she immediately recognized that Roy was not good enough for her. And friends, that day is coming when we will finally look into the face of God, into that face of true love, and we will finally see there ourselves, our true selves. And all of the self-doubt and the self-loathing and the shame and the brokenness, all of that stuff, all of that garbage is going to disappear. And in that one moment, we will realize that we were always meant for one and only one lover, and that is Jesus Christ himself. He is the only one who's good enough for us. And in that moment, we will put away all the cheap, costume jewelry and the gaudy makeup and we'll tell Roy and all of the other idols of Babylon to get out of town because they're not good enough for us and then we'll put on the fine linen of the bride bright and clean we'll put on fitting clothing clothing that's fit for our groom and put on the righteous deeds of the saints. And friends, what I want you to see is we don't have to wait. We don't have to wait till that day to look into the face of God. The love that we will see in God's own face, we can see right now on the cross, in the Lamb, in looking at that cross, friends, each and every one of us should recognize how valuable we are. We are God's people, made in His image, His very own bride. And we should live like it. Let's bow together in prayer. Lord Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you for the reminder of our identity in Christ. Lord, that you have made us, and you loved us so much that you climbed up on a cross to redeem us. Lord, fill us with your spirit that we may dress appropriately for the wedding that is ahead and begins even now.